Good evening, everyone. Good evening, and welcome to the series of GTC lectures for 2014. Uh, as you know, these are focused on the tyranny of the norm. Last week, we were guided through the thicket of conventions around appearance and their implications by Professor Nicola Rumsey. And most recently, Sarah Ahmed, Professor of Race and Cultural Studies at Goldsmiths, made us creatively and constructively uncomfortable by exposing how power and presumed norms really work in institutional settings. Tonight, we're going to discuss another hugely influential zone of battling and defeating norms in terms of elite athletic competition. And once again, I think we couldn't wish for a better guide. Uh, Peter Keane's career began in one prominent sporting university, Brighton, and he's now returned to what is probably the most prominent sporting university, Loughborough. But in between, he's done the job for the nation. As national coach and then performance director for British Cycling, head of performance at UK Sport and performance director as we went into the 2012 Olympic Games. There's a little piece of all of those medals that going back to Chris Boardman in 1992 that in fact belongs to Peter. I have to say that I learned from Peter and his colleagues at the Chelsea School at the University of Brighton in the early 90s what sports science really is. It is about physiology, nutrition, bioengineering, psychology and sports-specific technique. But it's also about honesty, endeavour and aspiration. It tells us really important things about human enhancement and its limitations. And that's why it's at the heart, I think, of our series. So we're all looking forward to hearing what he has to say tonight under his title, Ordinary People Do Extraordinary Things. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Dr. Peter Keane. Well, thank you for that very warm welcome and, and very flattering introduction, David. Um, I am a sport coach at heart, not an academic, despite the title. Um, so I'll set myself some very simple goals for tonight. I think the first is hopefully just to entertain. I hope what I can share with you is, is interesting and perhaps thought-provoking. I think my second goal is to persuade you that despite appearances, despite the rhetoric and the mythology, the vast majority of Olympians, including medal winners, are fundamentally ordinary people, albeit doing extraordinary things. And I'm going to try and do that by sharing with you, I guess, what for me are the most important observations and insights to date from, from essentially 30 years in the business. If, if you, as you're going to see in a moment, look at my, my life story, uh, my journey from a young undergraduate to being with you here this evening, it's pretty much been absorbed in, obsessing about, fascinated with high-performance sport trying to be in it as, as a, an athlete and not succeeding, coaching, managing, and then ultimately trying to strategize about it. And it's led me into all sorts of interesting domains. Certainly it led me into science, initially as a young academic, and then, as you've heard, into coaching. And then, as an adjunct to many of the roles I've held in sport, opportunities to look into things like special services, um, the RAF, uh, the SAS, etc., looking at other domains where expertise and high performance is, is sought on an everyday basis. And if I offer up any wisdom in, in the course of the next 40 minutes, it's simply what I've observed repeatedly in, in 
and through those experiences that, for me, explains a lot of high performance in the world of, of elite sport. I'm duty-bound, because of the uh, very interesting context in which I'm speaking tonight, to try and make a connect between this, this notion of the tyranny of the normal. And I must admit, when, when David's letter of invitation dropped into my uh, inbox, my first reaction was to say yes, because it sounded fascinating. Um, and it was very flattering, I have to say, to be invited to come and speak in quite such a prestigious place. But if I'm equally honest, I didn't really think about it for a little while. And then as the, the weeks and months tick by and you think, I've got that in my diary, I really should start to prepare for this. I thought, what, what on earth was that title about? So I went and found this essay, which I suspect, if not being the, the source of the inspiration, is certainly very relevant to it, and read it. And it was a fascinating essay, very clearly focused on a, a, a number of extreme uh, scenarios to do with the value of life and death in a, in a, in a medical legal sense. But I had to cut out this, this short quotation in order to give me a chance of being relevant tonight. Because when I read, it is therefore to certain myths and legends that we must turn to understand the roots of our deep ambivalence towards fellow creatures who are perceived at any given moment as disturbingly deviant outside currently acceptable physi physiological norms. I immediately felt at home. <laughs> myths and legends... Physiological norms, deviance, that sounds like elite sport to me. So, so all of a sudden, actually, I probably do have something to share, albeit in a rather non-academic context. Because it suddenly struck me there is a paradox at play here, that joking aside, the world I'm going to take you into in a moment is all about those extremes, real outliers, by any judgment or measure, scientific or otherwise. We're talking about people who do very unusual things to a very high level. How different are they? And how much are they exposed to this challenge of being pulled back into the pack or rejected? To me, there probably is a paradox I want to explore. And on the one hand, I think superficially, most people's view is that they are individuals or teams that we place in a higher space. We look up, we have them as role models, as some, some describe. <coughs> or something to be aspired to. It does something out extreme. And yet, I think, when I reflected on this, actually what they experience, in many cases, is a certain rejection or misunderstanding, a desire to be pulled back and not be so different. And perhaps the ones that really fly high are those that have been able to break out from that and go further. I've got to give some context it's my opportunity to talk about the one subject I can genuinely say I'm an expert in, and that's myself. I want to tell you a little bit about the journey I've been on. It'll take me about 15 or 20 minutes, but it's essentially a sort of story in three parts, and David's already alluded to it very well. And it's best expressed as a journey through a series of Olympic Games. So for the first three, which is Seoul in 1988 through to Atlanta, really where I was focused, even though my day job, which I'm now willing to admit to my former boss, was to teach and research in sports science. Actually, an awful lot of the time, I was out uh, trying to coach the British cycling team um, in my spare time and in the university's time. But it was fundamentally trying to figure out how you help somebody get to the top of that proverbial mountain. How do you move from just being, say, a British champion or a record holder to being genuinely competitive in something as esoteric as an Olympic Games? The second phase of my career then moved into 
trying to apply what I'd learned and observed into a systematic approach. When I left the University of Brighton in 1997, it was a little bit of a leap of faith that I took along with a number of contemporaries in British sport at the time because an opportunity had come up that is one of those chance-in-a-lifetime moments. And I do sometimes make a joke of saying I kind of won the lottery because what the National Lottery did in terms of creating a resource opportunity for an awful lot of sports was enable people like me to give it a go and actually see what it would be like to try and develop high-performance sport as a day job, not to do it in your spare time, not to squeeze it into life, limited by so many other uh, factors. So I gave up the, the career as an academic, moved to Manchester and, and set up the British Cycling Team programme with a sort of vision of trying to take what I'd learned, working with individuals of my choosing on my terms and create a national programme which was an interesting six-year journey, which I could talk all night about, but I shall just draw very briefly on some of the key insights. When I handed that over to a now very famous um, Knight of the Realm, Dave Brelsford, in 2004, I went into a, a role at UK Sport, which essentially became strategic, trying to, again, scale up what I'd learnt working with individuals and then a single sport to look at an entire way to invest in high-performance sport across, across the UK in Olympic and Paralympic sport an interesting exercise in itself. And that uh, pretty much brings us up to, up to date in terms of uh, where I am now, although I left that role just over a year ago. So that's where I've been. What have I seen? This is a photograph I took walking out into the stadium in Seoul in 1988. I'm 24 years old. Um, six months before I took this photograph, the phone rang. And uh, a, very, a, very, a very great person uh, who nobody will ever heard of, called Doug Daly, who was the national coach for cycling at the time, said, Peter, you're doing all this interesting sciencey stuff. You seem to be coaching and advising a number of our leading cyclists. Would you like to come to the Olympic Games as an assistant coach? It's not the biggest leap of faith I've ever had to make in life in terms of deciding to say yes. It's one of those moments you think, wow, fantastic. So I went through this wonderful ritual of, of um, having to fill out all the forms, uh, get all your, your measurements taken for your kit, have the wonderful experience of having the kit issue, going along a 30-metre trestle table and having six of this and two of that and ending up with a 30-kilogram suitcase of swag, which just had Great Britain Olympic team written all over it. Um, feels kind of good. And six years before this photograph was taken, my dream would have been to be doing that as an athlete. Now, that didn't happen. More on that later. Um, but it's one of these images that, when I look at it, and I remember what I felt at the time, it's that sense that I've arrived. This is it. I kind of won. I got to march as a member of the British Olympic team. Fantastic moment. Um, marched in the daytime then, which is interesting. Not at night. It was very, very hot. Three weeks later, getting ready to come back, uh, I know my mood was in a very different place because what I'd actually seen is this other world, the world that I knew, the norms of British sport, and particularly the sport of cycling, was, well, we're kind of here, doing okay, and we get to go to things like the Olympic Games, but we don't really compete. We kind of rock up and get beaten up. And there are these nations and individuals who operate at a higher plane, and that's not for us. They're up here, we're down here, and that's kind of our lot. And I have to say, I didn't feel that great coming away from it because, you know, that, 
that moment had passed and the reality of where the bar was, I guess I found quite challenging. So we fast forward now to Barcelona and, and a slightly more uh, positive image. Um, I'm now all of 28. I've coached this young man, Chris Borman, for five years now. And he did something that nobody cyclist had done for 72 years prior to this, and that is win a gold medal in Olympic Games, which is quite a surprise to an awful lot of people in the sport. It was an even bigger surprise to the British media because all they had to write about before this was that two, two weightlifters had tested positive for taking a drug called clenbuterol, which you give to asthmatic sheep. Um, also has some slightly interesting bodybuilding qualities too. So not, not, not a great sort of team spirit at the time. Um, so it was a bit of, bit of one of the moments in, in time where you, know, you really seem to have broken through. And as the photo sort of suggests, I kind of want to take a bit of ownership that by putting my arm around him, as the journalist said. Scott Down, I'll put your arm around him. Um, we'd been on a journey, quite an interesting journey in terms of leaps of faith. And actually, fundamentally, doing something that nobody around us seemed willing to do or to talk about. And that was to work back from a vision that sort of started with, well, if you were going to be an Olympic champion, what would you actually have to do? What would it take? What would that look like as a life, as a way of training, as a way of being? Turns out that took more courage than I probably realised at the time because nobody around us thought like that or was prepared to speak like that. And actually, we'd been doing it subconsciously for four or five years and actually getting quite good. In fact, he'd broken a world record before he got to Barcelona. That wasn't very interesting at the time. Nobody knew about cycling, so it, you know, it was an unknown. But actually, he was comfortably top four in the world before Lotus came along with this wonderful bike that some of you may recall as a story. And the particular insight I'll share is what actually happened six weeks before he won the gold medal. We were at a training camp. He was doing times that were faster in training than anybody had done in history before. It was looking good. And the team psychologist who worked with us at the time, a very smart guy, suddenly must have recognised we'd reached this critical junction because he insisted we had a team meeting. Now, a team meeting normally meant that all the team that I coached, all eight of us, would meet in a room, organise a circle of chairs, and we would go through some kind of exercise, either mental rehearsal of how we were training because it's a team event and an individual event that we worked on, or there'd be something about the team dynamics we'd work on, but it was very team-oriented psychology. But he called a team meeting for Chris and me, which seemed a bit weird, and there were three chairs in the room, two facing each other and his. And he made us sit there and look at each other and go, right, Chris, tell Pete what you're thinking. So he would have come out with some banalities about, well, I don't think today's training session went very well or we should be eating more carbs or something, and I'd have said something equally banal. And then you would go, right, no, what are you really thinking? And after about three iterations of this exercise, we got to the heart of the matter, which was actually he's thinking he can win it and I'm thinking he can win it, but we're not talking about that. We're crossing our fingers and being very British and hope it's all going to work out okay. And we stopped doing that because actually once that was out, all of a sudden the challenge looked very different. And we started working back from an image, a crystallising image of what it was going to take to stand on that podium at the top. All of a sudden, realising, you know, we've never had to deal with the media. In an event where at the time you competed 
in a time trial round to set a time, which then meant you raced in a series of, of qualification races through to a final. So you raced four times as a track event. It's timed as well as racing a competitor. There's all sorts of tactics you can consider there as well, which I won't bore you with. The point of the, the, the insight, I hope, is clear. We made a leap of faith, and all of a sudden the world looked very different. And we planned and thought through. So when those things actually started happening, it didn't freak us out because it was like, okay, right, we thought about this. I still see medals being lost or opportunities missed in elite sport, by the way, by making those simple mistakes, not having those conversations. So any curling fans amongst us still weeping from the loss of a gold medal? I watched our triumphant male curling team go to be interviewed straight after winning the semi-final. And I watched them, and I saw the body language, and I listened to what they were saying. And I'm sad to have to say, they probably lost the final then. Because everything was telling me they weren't working to a vision of winning it. They were just happy to be in the final. And these are very fine margins. But my heart sank. Didn't want to call it, but I know what I see. It's a tough business. Um, we'll skip Atlanta. It was gruesome. For all sorts of reasons. Uh, you'll have to call me back for that story. Sydney 2000, uh, a, a different image. I'm getting a bit older. I've grown a beard. Um, we've just all crawled out of a long-haul flight from Sydney, uh, so we all look a bit worse for wear. But this is a kind of triumphant returning team now. It's not just one medalist. It's, it's, it's a few. And there is actually a very young Chris Hoy for aficionados in the middle with his first silver medal. Went on to many more things, as you all know. Um, and although there are smiles there, there's an awful lot of pain too, because the cultural change two years into my time at British Cycling was absolutely immense, and there was a very high body count. And we'll perhaps return to that theme at the end when we think about normalising forces and don't go there and don't test the limits. I assumed that everybody could read my mind. I assumed that everybody wanted the same as me. You know, when you ask and are given millions of pounds of public funding predicated on the idea you're going to do something transformative, you're going to go from being okay to aspiring to be world-class, well, of course you're going to change everything. Of course you're going to work really hard. Of course people are going to suddenly change from being amateurs into professionals. And it didn't work like that. Uh, it was an awful lot harder than I thought it was going to be. Because I think, actually, cultural change in sport or any dimension is... is vastly harder as a consequence of this desire to keep it tight and remain where you are comfortable and familiar. So when I see that image, I'm always... It's kind of a bit of sweet because it is all smiles, but behind each, each, each example I can think of the journeys uh, and the changes that people went through. I suppose it's also worth saying, back to this theme about ordinary people, that an image like that reminds me of just how lucky I've been to have literally lived with and been on a journey with these individuals to the point where, for better or for worse, you have breakfast with them, you work all day, you talk about it all over dinner in the evening, they go to bed, training camp situations. You, you really do live and go on a journey in elite sport. And so when I think about them as individuals, I think about all their limitations and normalities. They do one thing exceptionally well. In most other spheres, they're remarkably similar, have similar failings and limitations. This is an image from the 2004 Olympics in, in, in Athens, and it's one that I, I guess 
always triggers in me the, the, the observation that when we talk about world class or a gold medal standard or something that is, is truly beyond the norm, it's not just a random performance, but a genuine outlier individual. I think of Chris Hoy and this win, his first gold medal of many, six since, um, which he won in a very particular way. And it speaks a lot about where the cycling team had got to through that cultural change and almost renormalizing to a different mindset. He won an event called the One Kilometre Time Trial. It's an event which is a bit like downhill skiing. Um, it's seeded so the people expected to do really well go last. And the kind of tension builds as you see each time done and you know, will the next person beat it or not. He went in as last starter. Um, there's all sorts of interesting theories as to why he was starting last, because he wasn't the defending world champion. Um, a Frenchman who was the current world record holder was the defending world champion and should have started last. He was actually seeded last in the previous Olympic Games and it emotionally collapsed when our very own Jason Queeley, who you saw with the gold medal, started fifth from the end and got up and did a time that this guy had never done before. And he emotionally collapsed. Chris Hoy went to the start line for this event, having just seen that Frenchman set a new world record at sea level, go faster than he'd ever gone, in front of an ecstatic crowd. He had to get up to the start line knowing that he'd never done that time in his life. As he took the start line, this sea of Union Jacks suddenly appeared in the velodrome in Athens. Quite how, many, how many Brits had got tickets, I will never know, but it was this extraordinary roar, which is kind of nice, but not necessarily what you want when you're really having to sort of focus on your effort. The point I guess I'm, I'm making is really exceptional performance is when you deliver to order, when you can't suddenly come out of the shadows and surprise the opposition in many ways, as Borman did in 92. This was the ultimate pressure performance, and he absolutely nailed it. He, he was faultless, set a new world record, beat a Frenchman at every split, fantastic result. And the view from behind, for me, of that performance was not just an individual who'd grown beyond my ability to predict from the photograph four years before, but a whole team of people had built up around him who thought and operated in a fundamentally different way, which has now actually become a norm. We work back from the win. We don't take prisoners. We pursue all those marginal gains. It's, it's the way they do it. And it's still misunderstood by many British sports and, and other competitor nations, quite what's going on there. The image from Beijing is an interesting one um, for me because we started to break through as a nation. There was a performance there. We finished in Olympic sport, fourth in the medal table. All the politicians panicked because they thought that's what the target was for London and that we'd peak too early and it was all going to go downhill and, you know, or they'd have to change the date of the next election because that's part of the plan, um, which is interesting. So we're actually saying, well, no, no, that's keep following the line. We're on a rise here. But we've moved from the occasional random outlier to actually now is this, this is an almost an expectation across a number of sports. We're expecting that. I think it's remarkable how you move from outliers to, to renormalization. One cheesy photograph of me, I'm afraid, because I have, to, I have to reference it in terms of this theme for this evening. The journey for me from Beijing to London was very quiet in the background, trying to do 
my best to make certain that the focus of resources and effort and logic was on everything I've shared with you this evening so far. That willingness to work back from an honest engagement of what it's going to take in terms of commitment, in terms of resourcing and prioritisation. It was an interesting job because it certainly didn't give me lots of Christmas cards. Um, The role was essentially, at the end of the day, determining who got what from the finite cash resource available. But far more important than that was what we were actually doing with it. So I'm stood there in front of what became known as the tracker board. It was an attempt to try and get sports to not just take the money, but to engage in a process of relentless pursuit of excellence through constantly questioning what you do. So we developed a system of reporting and feedback and dialogue, um, which is represented there in summary form in terms of a classic traffic light feedback system, red, amber, green, lying behind which was an awful lot of uh, confidential detail that sports reported to to us. What you saw there was actually what we shared with the press every four months. We give a press briefing and saying, how are we looking? Are we on track? What's the story? It was our way of trying to manage expectation and also set expectation with sports. I've been criticised for all sorts of things in my career, um, usually for being a heretic at the point of any change, and then sometimes lauded as as a visionary because it all worked. But in the context of this, probably most of the criticism was about trying to normalise the thing I've described, trying to spread it across, as opposed to allow each and every sport to do their own thing. Most sports would come to UK Sport, the organisation I work with, and say, well, look, just give me the money, don't ask any questions, we'll do it our way. As opposed to, well, actually, it's not just about accountability, but what is your way? What's working, what isn't? What could be shared that you're doing well that other sports could work with? But the perception was often an attempt to manage and and, and normalise, which certainly wasn't our intention, but it's interesting how that was perceived and in many cases challenged. I guess my defence is the proof is in the pudding, and we did better than most people expected, but I've already answered a question uh, over to you this afternoon. Was the 65 medals that were won by Team GB in the Olympic Games vastly more than we expected? All the analysis that sat behind this said, no, that was exactly what they should have done. Because that was what the form book says. And the form book was where they were in the previous World Championships or European Games or whatever was the benchmark leading into this. So, change of direction. We all know what that is. And I think in the context of these discussions, a very interesting place to... To, to, to refocus, the normal distribution. Uh, for my sins, I actually taught stats briefly at Brighton. I wasn't very good, but I do remember the basics. So we, we won't worry about the detail on it, but what I'll share with you is this. Where we've got good systems working now in high-performance sport in the UK, we know that, broadly speaking, the numbers look like this. When you create a small, very select group of individuals from the applicants, as it were, you're looking at typically a 2% take of those who look interesting. So 2% of a subpopulation. Maybe there's 10,000 racing cyclists in the UK, a 1,000 of whom look like they're kind of of interesting. We're talking about 2% of that subpopulation. That's how narrow we start out with. But they're not the ones that meddle. They're even less than that. And actually one of the things that drove me to try and manage that investment in UK sport on behalf of the nation 
was to put, put it bluntly, not to waste money where you weren't going to ever do anything. Because actually just giving people money does not make them happy, as it turns out, in sport, if winning or aspiring to win is ultimately what <coughs> that resource is, is there for. So we're talking really extremely narrow subpopulations, probably very akin to, to your undergraduate and postgraduate populations here, I suspect. Very elite. What really makes them tick? Very briefly, these are the kind of lessons to date from 30 years that explains the performances rendered down to its simplest. I always start with an image of Everest because it reminds me to make the point of why I'm not going to go out and climb it. There's loads of books in sport. All the coaching ones will talk about setting smart goals, specific, measurable, attainable, realistic, time-based it's possible to assemble from the literature and the known knowns how you do it. The training involved. I could, with some confidence, write a plan to climb Everest. I know what diet's involved. I know what the risks are. I can read the books. In fact, I have. I'm quite obsessed with it. Um, I'm probably quite good at being able to fantasise about it as well, having read the books and thinking, oh, that would be kind of cool. But I'm not going to do it because I haven't got that. I haven't allowed that daydream to kind of fester into this compelling vision that says, that is what I'm going to do. The people that make it in elite sport seem to be able to go from that to this. Quite why they do it, I'm not sure yet. I'm working on that. But that's really important. Is it them? Is it their environment? What is it? An awful lot of environments say, don't think that. I think most people daydream. I think most people are capable of visualising and imagining alternatives or better or change but don't do it because quite often the environment says no they're often not very good at articulating that by the way as well some don't even know they're doing it and the ones that do think well I'm not going to tell you that because I'll either look silly if I don't achieve it or it's too personal but burning within is an image that they pursue relentlessly it's not a goal because it's usually just slightly less tangible than something you can absolutely measure so yes, they'll say, I wanted this gold medal for the last 20 years. Actually, more often than not, is they saw an image of a gold medalist and they thought, that's me. That's the kind of place I want to be, the kind of person I imagine myself. More often than not, they'll come off a podium with their 420-gram semi-precious metal in their hand and go, is that it? Seriously, is that it? Well, of course it isn't it, as we'll find out. So that's quite important. You've heard a little bit about my own leaps of faith. And I love the image of Bob Lehman jumping 29 feet two and a half inches in old money in the 68 games. I don't think by the expression on his face he was quite sure he was going to jump that far. Um, but there's definitely something that these people do, whether it's instinctively or learnt or taught, which says, I want that thing. And if this place can't give it to me or help me get it, I'll either change it so it can or I'll leave. They do not allow themselves to be contained by an environment that says no, or it can't be done. Now, whether that just defines them as iconoclasts, I think we could perhaps debate. But I think it's an interesting trait, and I see this pattern not just in sport, but elsewhere. The third thing they do is not just start from some great point of talent. In fact, I think that's a very poorly understood concept in sport, and in possibly life in general. Um, you fall off a lot in bike racing. Um, you get back up, you either give up or you learn and you think, what happened there? 
Uh, some things are unavoidable. Actually, he was a contemporary of mine as, as a junior national cycling champion. And this is as far as he got in this race and in his career. This is the 84 Olympics, the one I didn't make. And about half a second after that crash happened, the bike flew up and knocked poor old Mark Barry out. What I have seen time and time again is not that the people who start the quickest in their careers or the brightest, but the people that just keep getting better and better. And my theory is basically this, that whatever qualities they have or whatever they've learned to be, their ability and willingness to immerse themselves and focus to the exclusion of many other things in life gives them more time on task, not just to train, but to reflect and make better judgments. It's a fascinating area of work. I've started to read into it. It goes into economics. It's all Daniel Kahneman's thinking fast, thinking slow, trying to work more rationally as opposed to emotionally in decision-making when it really matters. There's a lot of this goes on in sport, and it often defines the key judgments when you stop and you reflect and you consciously think through your choices and make a call as opposed to just going with emotion. Most of the really good stuff in sport happens when you go to training camps, middle of nowhere. All the distractions go, you're locked down, and all of a sudden the days seem longer. Everything slows down. I'll spare you the story about the, the, the image, even though it's, it's, it's one of my favourites, um, from Barcelona. We touched on myths right at the start. Here's one I have to explode. And that is that these things are things that the, the winners are immune to. Actually, it's the other way around. If I'm advocating this to any audience, it's actually that these are actually the constant companions that go with you whenever there's aspiration. And there's a kind of simple logic to it. It's an absolute inevitability. If you care about the end product, the thing you want to be, but you cannot be 100% certain it's going to happen, not only does that make it interesting to do, but it's bound to make you anxious. It's actually the very thing that fuels you. So some of the mythology of sport is what winners do to project this invincibility. This, I you know, always knew I could do it or whatever. It's all a myth. When you get really close to them, that fear of failure, that drive, that anxiety... As my partner will tell you, Vicky, at the front, you know, an hour ago, I wasn't a lot of fun to be having a cup of tea with in town because I was anxious about this. And you can judge at the end whether I'm performing or not, but this is better than my normal day, I can assure you. <laughs> you, you <laughs> it really is a, a fundamental either quality or ability that's developed that explains these, these extraordinary performers. But now here's the really interesting one, I think. It's not about the medal. It's not even about the achievement of that vision. It's actually the journey. The simple truth is they love what they're doing. And it's taken me a little while to figure this out and actually to apply that to myself at times. This notion of a fascination for the process is not a term that I, I came up with. It was a, a very successful American canoe coach that put it to me. And the reason I include these images are because they're examples from my own career where I've become totally immersed in, in, in either studying physiology researching in the field, this one up here, which is interesting, helping to design bikes on computers so that we can actually go faster. They're all things that I've been utterly absorbed in. And this guy's work it finally explains it to me. Mihai Sixcentmihai, as I believe how you pronounce it, has this notion, this concept of flow. It's very interesting. Come rather late to it. I mean, the notion of flow has been around in sport forever. 
And I think I would have used it as a term as a coach even 25 years ago, but I wasn't actually sure probably what I was talking about. For me, of these five things that ultimately, if you want to be an Olympian, I'd be saying, other than being perhaps the right shape, these are the things that are going to change you. It's exceptionally highest work that I think is really interesting and probably goes explains more of the total variance in performance that I see than the other factors and others besides that. There's a lot to it, and I'm not going to attempt to talk to it in the way that he and his, his advocates will. But it's this notion that actually when somebody's doing something that requires a high level of skill and a high level of challenge that are almost perfectly matched, you can enter a different state of mind. And I think this is exactly what you see in elite sport, or in anybody breaking out of the norm. They found something that they're fascinated by, that they like to do, and that they become immersed in. And in so doing, they get better at it. And it's not just they get better at it, as I'm going to come on to try and persuade you. I think it grows them as people as well. And that's kind of interesting. There's a lot on that slide, and with one eye on the clock and really hoping to leave a bit of time for q and I'll kind of whiz through it, really. You could interpret it if you're more to the Eastern mysticism as a transcendent state. Um, what particularly interests me about Six Sent High's work is there's some really robust science on this. They've done the numbers. This isn't just stuff he's made up. He's interviewed thousands of people. They've run some very interesting experiments to look at what's going on here. But I think it's the thing that most people in sport don't understand, and I think it explains most of why people not go on those journeys but actually get to the levels of achievement that they do because actually they are loving what they're doing. And I think in a lot of careers and other walks of life is when people move away from the things that gave them flow. That's often where their careers stall. We often promote people in business in particular out of the areas that actually they truly excel at. A little bit more personal as we start to wrap up. Can anybody spot me? Right. There's me, age six. It's 1970. I'm very proud of the multi-ethnic world that I was, I was brought up in as a, as a young, very average kid in High Wycombe, just down the road from where we are today. Um, where's all this going, you wonder? Smiles in the audience. Um, I've got some, some evidence to back up just how ordinary I was. Um, the school I went to wrote reports like this, and bless my mum, she kept them. Um, and without having to really squint, <laughs> not only was I an outlier at the wrong end of the distribution, but that is physical education, one word. And I don't think it was descriptive of my hair colour. I wasn't, at 13, a kid going anywhere, I guess is my serious point. And that's not to say that I've gone anywhere particularly exceptional, but I'm certainly not the adult product that I suspect my school reports predicted at this rather critical age in life. I did something very interesting in the year that report was written, and I still can't quite tell you why I did it, other than I had a mate who lived three doors up the road. He liked riding a bike. I had a bike. And we hatched this plot to go youth hostelling. We're 12. We persuaded our parents, quite bizarrely, that it was OK at the Easter of 1977 to pack up our bikes and ride to Wales and back over the course of five nights. In fact, I rode through Oxford in the Easter of 1977 on the way to Stone the World Youth Hostel, which is 20 miles up the road. We arrived there, having ridden 50 miles. It was full. A load of students turned up in a bus and booked it. And the, the warden looked at us and said, ah, problem. There's another hostel, another 20 miles up the road, Cleve Hill, which is the big hill above Cheltenham. 
looks down. So eight o'clock that night, in the pouring rain, myself and my mate are pushing our bikes up to Cleve Hill Youth Hostel. I was crying. I was very tired. It was dark. We were wet. We got there. Warden took one look at us and said, are you self-catering? And of course we said yes, because not only were we going to do all this, we were going to cook for ourselves. He cooked, he cooked us a meal. Was I some great athletic specimen that, that was doing something that only made sense because I was, I was a, an Olympian? Well, bizarrely, my school weighed us and took our height. And I was five foot one and six and a half stone in old money. One year later, I joined a cycle club. I thought, this is cool, I'll start racing. Two years later, I looked like that. Um, not some great specimen, but certainly a bit more athletic than this. I was changing at an extraordinary rate. The one little bit of data I'll show you tonight uh, is very personal, and that's my coursework and exams, because you didn't just keep one report, you kept most of them. And not only did I become a British champion and uh, national record holder by uh, 1980, three years on, but I was also top of my class, bizarrely. Now, my, my simple conclusion is this. If you look at the notion of flow and the notion of developing a more complex self as a consequence of immersion, better things happen. Happen to me. It's why I'm here tonight. It's why I'm an advocate of the value of sport and what it can teach us, because it's not about winning medals and it's not about counting budgets. It's about growing people. <coughs> so is there a tyranny of the normal in this scenario? Is this all about great stuff happening to a few people? I'd love to unpack that, that, that sentence that I put up there below it in, in real great detail. I think we'll try and do that more in this Q&A. I see in, in the, these stories a very powerful desire in, in people for autonomy and mastery that I've seen in a very privileged way, in a very intimate way, in high performers. But I've described them to you tonight as fundamentally ordinary people. And I think in many other domains that you place them in or judge them in, they are. They just got very, very good at one thing, something that we value and admire and resource and therefore see a lot of. But many anecdotes I could share are about their journeys and their environments actually resisting that, trying to pull them back in. Sport is as dogmatic and traditional as an environment as any other I've been in. There are norms, there are things that say no, do not go outside of that, remain within the pack. All the time, they're fighting with that. They're also fighting with that really quite fundamental concept within, within science of, of regression to the mean. That is what you just did genuinely different or just an outlier. You got it good this day, but actually the next day you'll be back in the pack. There's something I think that's quite difficult to get your head around with that notion. But for me, it's actually quite, a, quite an important one to reference at this point in, in the proceedings, that... There's the uncertainty as to whether you really are any better, and if so, does it matter? But also, not just your peers pulling you back, but also <coughs> the evidence. Are you really that outstanding? It's a fascinating thing. I'll sum up, and then hopefully we can explore where this goes. Everything I've learned in all of this kind of renders down to this, actually. And whether it's about challenging norms or just a more aspirational way of seeing opportunities, is that wherever I've seen this kind of mantra followed, either overtly or just quietly in the background, it seems to work. There's got to be a willingness to celebrate excellence when it's genuinely definable and achieved. 
Uh, quite often, I think the normalizing forces don't like that at all. Poppy syndrome, great cheer, but actually at the other side of it, you're thinking, I don't really like you doing that well. If that's genuine and real, it's incredibly invigorating to people with a sense of purpose. So the willingness in any system or culture to invest in talent, if you think of it in terms of something you've got rather than something you develop, and certainly endeavour, the commitment, the willingness to immerse and, and to, if necessary, sacrifice to get what you want, massively important. But the corollaries of these things are a willingness to challenge underperformance. If you've agreed the deal and you're working at it, that's the other side of the, the distribution, as it were. And certainly in elite sport, a willingness to reject mediocrity and say, no, that is not good enough. Now, you could interpret that as normalising again, but these forces are there all the time. So that's what I can offer up. I hope it's been interesting, a little entertaining. Um, it certainly, I hope, is, is, is a platform to start a little debate about these forces and how they play out in sport. Thank you. Thank you.